But if you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and if you don't mind, would you stand with me if you can? It's not uncomfortable. And we read through this passage together. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says to Timothy, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case with those men, that is with Janus and Jambres, the uh, Egyptian magicians who opposed Moses before Pharaoh, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we, we reverence your word as the word of truth. Truth that is true because it matches reality better than any other philosophy, opinion, or thought that teens, tends to be promulgated out there. Lord, we believe that your word it does make us wise not only for salvation, but for the living of our lives on a daily basis. And we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would convince us of those things. Give us your grace in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Chapter and verse headings weren't originally in the biblical text. Most people don't realize that. The chapter headings came in at about the 12th century A.D. Uh, the verses came later on. And they were included for a very simple practical purpose. It's much easier to find chapter and verse if you actually have a designation of chapter and verse. Part of the problem, though, is, is that oftentimes those divisions were made somewhat arbitrarily. 
in order to divide a book up into basically equal measures and equal chapters, you have to have a cutoff point. And oftentimes what that cutoff did was it unnaturally interrupted the flow of the writer's thought process. Now, why do I explain that? Well, the reason is because the difference, the passage from chapter 2 to chapter 3 is exactly of that kind of case. You read the last verse of chapter 2, and it's easy when you start up in chapter 3 not to realize that this is a continuing thought. And the continuing thought begins with what he said in verse 25 of chapter 2. He said, gently instruct those who oppose, that is, oppose the truth, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Now, in that, Paul has said quite a bit, but let me summarize it simply this way. Basically, he says, a person really can't see the truth of God until there is a change in our perspective. For example, when Paul had Ananias pray for him and it said something like scales fell from his eyes and his blindness was removed and then he could see. It's the image that John Newton was speaking of in in his great hymn, Amazing Grace, where he says, I was lost, but I was found. I was blind, but now I see. It's that dramatic a transition. I think many of us who have given our lives to Jesus and committed ourselves to him did so not because we figured something out, not because we had some kind of native insight or discovered some inherent spirituality within ourselves, but rather there was this encounter divinely given to us where literally our eyes were opened and we saw the truth of the gospel. I think of my aged father when he was dying of cancer and, and, and I was visiting him and as we were sitting on the edge of his bed and he said to me after he had received Christ, he said, at 83 years of age, how could I have been so blind so long? In other words, why couldn't I see what I see so clearly? And all I could explain to him is, dad, because it's not us who finds God, it's God who finds us. We don't open our eyes. We don't gain understanding. God grants it to us. And so Paul in this passage says we should be praying that God would grant that kind of insight, that repentance, because the word metanoia that's used in the original literally means a change of mind, a change of understanding, a change of perspective, that my eyes are open and suddenly I see it. We can't talk somebody into seeing what they cannot see. When our eyes are opened, we can't deny what we now see. And he said that they would be able to know the truth and that they would be able to come to their senses, that there would be a a spiritual rationality. In In other words, what they believe now to be the truth matches the reality of not only time but also of eternity. Many people get confused. Why does my life always seem to be running into objects and and why are there so many collisions and disappointments in life? And a lot of it is because their view of reality isn't real. It's what Jesus said, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If you say, I see, and yet you are blind, there's no man more blind than a man who is blind and yet thinks he can see. And so, essentially, we go through life, and if we think something is true and it only proves not to be true, take a simple example that we're all familiar with. If I think that money will make me happy, then I will pursue money, but I will discover soon enough that it doesn't. 
One of my favorite quotes from David Roper, one of my favorite authors, <laughs> is he says, money talks, but mostly it lies. <laughs> and the biggest lie is that it in itself can lead to happiness. I'm not anti-money. I, I like money. It's helpful. But I don't want to pursue it as a life goal. And I don't want to believe that it's the source of happiness. Helpful at times, yes. Happiness, absolutely not. And so we believe things like that sometimes, and we make that the pursuit of life only to discover how disappointing it is. And I could go on for the next hour, and you know I can, so don't dare me. But I could go on and on and on, giving illustration after illustration after illustration. And the bottom line is that when you don't know the truth, you are really likely going to believe something that's a lie. Not because you're a liar or you want to. That's just what happens as a consequence of not knowing the truth. But the greater part of that passage that I want to tap into this morning is when he says to us following that what happens is they get trapped by the devil to the place where their life now becomes about fulfilling his will. And that's exactly what Paul is speaking about as he transitions into chapter 3. You see, the will of Satan is kind of twofold. He has a long-term objective, and that basically is to condemn your soul to a hellish torment for all of eternity. But failing to do that, if you come to Christ and he can't do that, then secondarily what he would like to do is entrap your life to, in a way, twist your soul over time so that all more and more it looks less like the image of God in which you were created and more like the image of Satan, that you might become more reflective of his nature. Even Jesus said to the Pharisees when they were saying, Abraham is our father, and he responded by saying, Abraham is not your father. The devil is your father because it's your will that you're living to fulfill. It's his agenda, his objections. You have his passions in his heart. So that when Paul transitions into chapter 3, he begins by telling us the last times are terrible times. The word terrible that's used there is really rather quite expansive in the original because it means to be a grievous time, a difficult time, a, a dangerous time, a perilous time, a savage time. As one translator put it, hard to deal with and hard to bear. In other words, it's not a very attractive portrait of what the last days are going to be like. But he says you need to understand that this is what's going to come. And so we see the transition because as he speaks about people being taken by Satan's will, he says, but mark this. Mark this out, because essentially what Paul says, I am trying to prepare you both spiritually and mentally for a time in the history of the world that honestly none of us in our right mind would ever want to be part of. Now, my wife was sharing me, she said, you know, I, as a young believer, she said, I used to always, oh, man, I want to live in the last days. I want to be, so, want to be here when Jesus comes and see all of this stuff. And that probably was before she read the book of Revelation. I mean, once you start reading that and you, you begin to really kind of get a concept, it's before we really begin to understand what Paul describes as the personality of the, of the what we call the zeitgeist, the, the spirit of the time. 
When Paul goes into chapter 3 and says, you need to understand this is what society is going to be like. This is going to be the rather predatory, animalistic kind of culture that you're going to find yourself experiencing. Because as I begin to do that, I'm saying, God, take me out of here before I have to experience that. God, I don't want my kids growing up in a world like that. I don't want my grandkids growing up in a world like that. Probably before too long, my great-grandkids. Gosh, it's hard being 80. But you know, you just, as you look at this and you realize that, that this is not something that he says might happen or nine out of 10 communities will be this way. He's saying, no, this is going to be the summation or basically the, the estimation of the culture of the world. This is how people, and as it talks about when Paul speaks to Thessalonians, it says, he who restrains will restrain until he is taken out of the way. Many of us wonder if the restraining influence isn't the Holy Spirit himself that no longer keeps people from being able to do the things that they do, but God begins to let men follow their own steam, their own head, their own passions. Jesus talked about the hour of darkness a time when God allows Satan to fully express himself that the hearts of men might be revealed for what they're really out about. So that as we look at this, I, I doubt any of us are going to see this prophetic prediction of what's coming as being good news. Because none of us want to think about a future that is terrible and dangerous and perilous and even as one lexicon put it, savage. You know, I know that some of you are saying, wait a minute, now, wasn't it Paul who, who said to us, rejoice in the Lord always, and whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, and if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Aren't we supposed to be the people who are positive and forming happy thoughts? And I say, yes, that's true, but you need to understand those happy thoughts are not based because of what the world is or that the world becomes a happy place that's filled with happy thoughts. It has never been that, another one of those false desires. And certainly, he says to us, you need to understand it's not going to be that way in the end times. But Paul, in fact, says in our reading here in verses 13 and then in 12, he says that evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Imposters. Imposters of what? They will present themselves as spiritually minded and helpful people. All you have to do when he talks, when Paul talks about silly women laden with sin, carried away with all these devices, I'm, the first thing that came to my mind, excuse me for saying this, is daytime TV. And I say this not to be condemning. I, I, I really don't want to condemn you but the simple fact is I have taken the opportunity to invest research in watching daytime TV. <laughs> and for me personally, I have to tell you, it was a Popeye moment. It's all I could take, so I can take no more, you know? I mean, it was really, really kind of hard. And, and I found that this, this is the seductive side of it because the personalities of these that, that host these shows are winsome. They're funny, they're clever, they're engaging, they're likable. But if you sit and really listen to the philosophy of life that is being sold to people, 
It's right out of the pits of hell. And they are imposters because they're pretending to have answers to the problems of life and ultimate solutions, and their own lives are train wrecks. I never have understood why anybody takes the philosophy of people who are in the entertainment business. I'm tangenting. Excuse me. I'm going on a tangent right now. I'll stop. But he says these are evil men because they are imposing something as being true which is not as true. That's what an imposter does. He imposes something as being true that is not true. And he goes on, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted because you take a stand against that. Because you step back and say, no, that's not truth. You will suffer as a consequence of that. Now, if you think that Paul was just having a bad day, listen to the words of Jesus on the same matter when he says in Matthew 24, 9, he says, you will be hated by all nations because of me. Wait a minute. <laughs> I want to be a celebrity pastor. <laughs> I want to be loved by the world. Let me tell you a little dirty secret about pastors. Most pastors struggle with being people pleasers because they're desperate for man's approval. That's the truth. I'm the only one that doesn't have that problem. But I mean, and, and I could share that openly because I suspect that you're just about as codependent as I am. <laughs> you probably battle that just as much. Everybody wants to be liked and popular. You know, everyone wants that. But at some point, Jesus said that the Pharisees' great transgression was that they loved the praise of men more than they did the praise of God. So the praise of men isn't in itself a bad thing. What is bad is how we begin to desire that above being pleasing to God because essentially persecution comes in your life when despite your desire for people to give you their approval, you take a stand that guarantees you won't. And that's just hard. That's not fun. And that's why we don't do it. That's why we go silent about all sorts of things that we really should speak up about. And I don't mean shout about. I don't mean yell at people or condemn people or put people down. But speak the truth in love. Jesus said, you'll be hated by them because of me. He says, many will turn away from the faith, apostasy, and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And then he says, because of the increase of wickedness, that the level of iniquity and wickedness and evil will just become so permeated throughout the world and society and culture that the love, the word love there is agape, agape love, that the love of most will grow cold. I mean, it's a staggering thing to say. But many times our hearts will just become cold because we've been marinating in the wickedness of the world that we're in. Remember the story of Lot, nephew of Abraham, this godly man who, when Abraham said, 
we'll divide the land because our, our, our tribe has become too big. And whichever way you go, I'll go the opposite way. And here the older who could have picked any place to go yields that right and says to the younger man, you choose what seems best to you and I will move in the other direction. Well, what do you think that Lot chose? He looked at Sodom, the valley of Sodom, and saw it was green and lush and well watered, a great place for pasturage, a great place for farming, a great place for financial advantages. And he says, I'll go there. Abraham said, it's yours. And he went the other way into the wilderness of Judea. And all I can tell you, having been to the wilderness of Judea, it's like walking across the surface of the moon. And yet what happened to Lot? We see how that as he lived within that community, even though he kept his own heart clean to some regard, he never engaged, yet there was a tolerance. There was an acceptance, and it affected not only his family, but even the fate of his family. And we need to understand that we live in a world that is, is becoming darker. It's, we, we have overused the frog and the kettle illustration because it's so telling you know, the idea that you can drop a frog in a, in a pot full of cold water or cool water and then you turn the heat up low and as it slowly heats up and comes to a boil, the frog will never jump out because his, the sensors on his skin are not subtle enough to, to recognize that subtle change in temperature and he'll simply sit there and boil to death. It's, now, I'm saying this because somebody else told me it and I read it. I haven't tried it. And I don't recommend, you know, frog stew isn't probably that good. Frog legs, if they're done right, can be good. But the whole point is that we, I think, are in that dynamic in our world. We live in a culture that the church is slowly, slowly changing in, in subtle and almost unnoticeable ways. And we become accepting of things that the Bible black and white says no. <laughs> so Paul begins by telling us what people are going to be like in those last days. I catalog them in 24 different things that, that he touches on. He, he talks about they'll be lovers themselves. In other words, they'll be utterly self-centered and self-absorbed. It's all about me. They're lovers of money, which means they'll be inordinately greedy and, and, and money-hungry. In fact, I was sharing with my wife the other day, I said, you know, when, when Martin Luther King said, I my dream is that one day my children will be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. And I said, you know what's sad today is that men are no longer judged by the content of their character. They're judged by the color of their money. We've made this subtle shift. And, he, and essentially we've created our own aristocracy that's based upon not your bloodline but on your money line. The more you have, the more valuable and important you are. The more right you have to speak about the important issues of the day just simply because we think that money is the answer. He says that they'll be boastful. In other words, self-promotion will become an art form. This is the most self-promoting 
society that I think the history has ever seen because of selfies. <laughs> I mean, it's really, you can tell how, how, how high or low somebody's self-esteem is by, based upon how many selfies they post. Really, if you feel that good about yourself, you don't have to keep on telling the world how great you are. Plus, you don't look that good. I'm sorry. <laughs> they will be proud, literally arrogant and boastful. They'll be abusive, or literally the term means slanderous. They'll just say terrible, horrible things about other people without regard to the effect. I love this one. They'll be disobedient to their parents. It's deeper than the phrase seems to indicate. More than disobedient, it implies a contemptuousness. That there's a contempt for parents and their authority. The idea that the older you are, the less worth and value you have, and you're not really worthy of attention, respect, or regard. That seventh, he said, they will be ungrateful. They're, there's an unappreciative, and they're not thankful. They don't appreciate what they have. They're defined more by what I call a culture of grievance. It's amazing to me, as I, as I was having a conversation with a family member a few months ago down in California, and they were talking about their adult son, who, I'm, uh, excuse me, grew up like the little prince, who was feted and, and cheated to everything that his parents could give him, and he says, now we're being told what bad parents we were. And I thought, it's the grievance culture. We always, we feel this unhappiness in ourselves, this troublesomeness in our own self, and so we find a grievance to err against someone else. He said they'll be unholy. In other words, there's nothing sacred, that they feel free to blaspheme God, that they're without love, that the word astorge is, storge means natural affection, the affection that a mother has for her child. She said, that'll be gone. That the natural affection that family members should have for each other will no longer be there because we'll view other people and even our family members as tools to be used for the advancement of our own agenda. That they'll be slander or unforgiving in other words, there'll be no sympathy, no empathy, no ability to understand what somebody else is going with through. They'll be slanderous. They'll make false accusations. They'll be without self-control. They'll be impulsively immoral. They, if it feels good, they do it. They'll be brutal. Literally the word cruel, fierce, savage, sadistic not lovers of good. In other words, they're amoral. They, they have no sense of one thing's being right or wrong. They just do whatever they think is right in their own mind. That they're not, they're treacherous means they betray. They're rash means they're violently impulsive. Conceited, they have an inflated self-esteem and no humility in their life. He, they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I love Eugene Peterson's way of phrasing it. Addicted to lust and allergic to God. They're addicted to lust and they're allergic to God. 19, he says, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That they are outwardly very religious 
And I, I think of so often we see today in celebrities where they wear crosses and they thank God for their award as they won some Grammy for a hip-hop song or a rap song that uses every profanity and degrades women and anybody else and promotes drug addiction and alcoholism and everything. And, and they say, I just want to thank God for this Grammy. It reminds me of a song I wrote once, and after I played, I said, God gave him this song, and my wife said, I wouldn't blame that on God. <laughs> Talked about being weak-willed and loaded down, burdened with sins. You see, sin is, is not something that is theoretical. Sin is objective. When you violate God's law, there is a weight that comes against you. There's a weight that you carry that weighs you down. And he says, because they have turned their back on God, they may deny him, they may blaspheme him, they may reject any guilt or responsibility, but they carry that weight nonetheless. That guilt weighs heavy upon them. And if you don't believe it, just touch somebody's sin and watch their reaction. That the anger you get back is the anger of somebody who is in deep pain because of their sins that they don't know how to deal with. They're swayed, he said, by all kinds of evil desires, literally slaves to their passions, slaves to their desires, their wants, their impulses. They no longer can say no to anything. They no longer control their, their behavior. Their behavior controls them. But then he says, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. They have all the information that they need, more than they can hold. We, last year, they published 100 million Bibles. <laughs> and six people read them. You know, it's, 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 there's more information available, and yet when it simply comes down to, well, I believe the Bible is God's Word. Well, do you believe this is God's Word in this area? Well, no, I don't believe that one because that happens to be my, one of my sins. In fact, I won't even call it sin. I'll just say that this was the way I was born. They oppose the truth. Literally, they're hostile towards God and His Word. And lastly, they are men of depraved minds that reprobate. Reprobate means they are so consumed by this darkness that there is no light that's able to penetrate their life. Now, granted, these kind of attitudes and bad behaviors have been around to some varying degree since the beginning of time. In fact, when I go through the list, I see myself in that list, the entire list. <laughs> Quite honestly, I mean, I see, to some regard, I see these things in my life. Here's the difference when I come across that and go, oh, yes, God, that is sin, that is wrong. There's the difference. See, as Christians, we're not going around the world telling, we would never do these kind of things. In other words, no, we look at that and go, oh God, how self-absorbed I am. How I get caught up in money. How I can get caught up in self-promoting. You know, you can do it in subtle ways. Self-promotion, you can be very subtle about. I mean, I, I was just sharing this the other day with President Obama when I said, <laughs> Barry, I love Gail Irwin's line one time. He said, he, he actually happened to him. He said, I was speaking at a church and, and uh, the pastor got up and said, this is Gail Irwin, we're glad to have him. And he goes on with the introduction. He says, you know, Gail Irwin is a man of whom Billy Graham once said, who? <laughs> 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 but, 
But we all look at this stuff, don't we? And we go, yes, I, I can see myself in this. But see, that's the difference. You see yourself. He's talking about a time when people look at that list and don't see themselves at all. They don't possess that beautiful gift of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They don't allow themselves to have that powerful acknowledgement of failure. Oh, God, I've fallen short again. You see, we are taught in a culture that we're to run from those things and pretend that they never touch us, and yet they are the very access points to the power and the grace and the good of God because it's all about grace from beginning to end. If you walk out of here today having experienced or understood or grasped anything of value, it's grace. That's all. And it's that grace that God wants us to be pressing into every morning as we awake before our head comes off that pillow that we're pressing in, God, let me experience the reality of your grace today. But we're talking about a time when grace no longer is part of the human vocabulary. And all of this becomes not vices but becomes virtues in the mind of people. And you have to understand that God says he has limits and there are consequences. When Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7.17, he said, do not be excessively wicked for why should you die before your time? God basically says, I will terminate your life if it becomes too profane. And we have examples. We, we read about the days of Noah. And I think what Jesus warned us, he said the end times would be like the days of Noah. He was talking about the cultural dynamics, the social dynamics. And the Lord said at that time, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth and how it had become so wicked that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. He goes on to say that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence and all the people on earth had corrupted their way. And even before the destruction of Sodom, the Lord said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous, so great that I will destroy it so great that I will destroy it. It's clear that with God there's a point called too far. A point that ends with utter and total destruction of the guilty. Not because they are guilty, but because they refuse to acknowledge their guilt. That's what repentance is. It's an opening of the eyes where suddenly realize, God, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I remember coming to a moment where I was feeling so very sorry for myself and the pity that I had for myself was beautiful. Yeah. And God spoke to me as I was seeking his face in a very profound moment and he said, you reap what you sow. Well, God... <laughs> You're not holding me responsible for their bad behavior. No, you reap 
what you sow. And suddenly I realized that the only understanding and insight I was ever going to come to was when I began to ask the question, what did I sow? What did I sow? Lord, my kids are so disobedient and so disrespectful. What have I sown? My wife is so, uh, so, so angry with me. What did I sow? My boss keeps on finding fault with my work. What did you sow? I can't believe he pulled me over for just going a few miles over the speed limit. Everybody knows you have a 15 to 20 mile cushion there. And on and on it goes. I'm, I don't mean to beat up on you. I'm just telling you, I beat up on myself when I finally realized, you know, I'm the farmer here. I plant the seed. And if I don't like what grows up, who do I have to blame? Well, I find that I can blame you. <laughs> but that doesn't fix the problem, does it? It's when you realize, you know, Lord... Uh, I got, there's got to be my sin in there someplace. This is my youngest son had his 34th birthday yesterday. My wife built up a whole collage of pictures and we started doing this picture thing on Instagram and it was so much fun. But what was really interesting is I looked at my son's picture and then I looked at his son's picture three months. They were identical twins. People used to always say to me, we can take one look at your kids and realize that they're your kids. They have the mark of Cain on them. <laughs> I mean, they all have that same head. But you understand, don't you, that the seed becomes evident in what it produces. What makes it tough for the righteous, for the godly man and woman? Again, not the perfect man and woman, but the man and woman who have a heart for God. What makes it tough is that when judgment comes, we live in the same world as those who are being judged. When Jesus said in Matthew 5, 45, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, uh, we need to understand that it probably also suggests that judgment falls to some degree on us as well, even though we may not be the predominantly guilty parties. Because even, it's interesting that Peter even makes that statement in, in his first letter to the church. He says, judgment begins at the house of God, and if it begins first at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? So that when God, before God, begins to judge the world, his first stop on the way is you and me. It's us. He begins to confront you and I with, what about you? To what degree have you been acclimated to the climate of your culture in a way that's unhealthy? And we have to ask ourselves, as Peter would later say in his second letter, since everything will be destroyed, what kind of people ought you to be? Since everything is going to be destroyed, what kind of a person ought you to be? So Paul gives his counsel to Timothy. 
It's interesting to me. You see, Timothy had a non-Christian father. But nevertheless, his mother and his grandmother, Paul tells us, had thoroughly trained and instructed him from infancy, he says. From infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So that he was nurtured in biblical truth from the earliest days of his life. It was not uncommon to begin teaching young children within a Jewish home in particular at three or four years of age so that by five years of age many of them were able to recite the entire book of Psalms from memory. Now we would sit back and say, well, they may have been able to parrot the word, but how much did they understand? It's interesting to me because if we put that kind of information into our head, when God needs to utilize it, He will access it for you. It'll suddenly come back to you and remind you. But in addition to this childhood opportunity that he had, and that's what it is, it's an opportunity to grow up immersed within the Word of God so that it permeates every brain cell if it, even if it hasn't yet touched your heart, it's permeated every brain cell. He had the unprecedented honor to accompany the Apostle Paul and his ministry entourage and experience firsthand both the power, the miracles, the faithfulness of God in Paul's ministry so that Paul could say to him, you know all about my teaching, my life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, the persecutions and sufferings that I've gone You know what kinds of things happened to me, the persecutions I endured. And you also know this, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Now rescue is an important word there because he doesn't say, but the Lord kept me from having to experience any of those things. No, he let me sink before he pulled me out. I did a, a wedding recently for a, a young couple in our church, and he's a, he was going through Navy SEAL training, and he was explaining to my wife's horror that three times he drowned. And then they would pull him out and revive him as part of his training. Now I know why I never wanted to be a SEAL. That and the fact that I'm lazy and hate pain. But yeah, I just, and I thought to myself, isn't that what Paul's saying? He says, several times God just let me go down. <laughs> he didn't pull me out like Peter. He let me sink to the bottom and then he reached down and he pulled me up. And what did he teach him? That even when I drowned, he still will rescue me. He'll rescue me. I know that some of you feel like you're drowning right now. There are things going on in your life. And I don't know that because you told me that. I just know that the odds are <laughs> that you are. And he says, Timothy, you have this amazing thing. You see, you've seen everything I've gone through, and now you know I'm in prison. Now you're waiting, I'm waiting to have my head cut off. And I know that's stressing you, and I know cowardice is, is something that you have a proclivity for. and It's a weakness in your life, and I get that. But never forget how God took me through terrible things, but he always rescued me. And we might, by inference, conclude that he's saying, and the ultimate rescue is 
that he's going to deliver me from this life. He's going to rescue me from a Christless eternity in hell. And he's going to give me eternal life in Jesus. The ultimate rescue. I, do you understand, at least I believe it's true for me, but do you understand that when you really know the Lord, that the thought of your life coming to an end is no longer a terror to you? But increasingly, as the creaks and the pains and the body becomes tattered and threadbare and all the things that go with it, you come to this realization of, you know, there is something better. God rescues us. The more heartache and pain and disappointment and suffering and wrong that you see in the world, you realize there's an answer that God is going to rescue me ultimately from this world. But you see, the problem for Timothy, and I think for you and I maybe to some degree, is that knowing something isn't the same as actually doing something. <laughs> it was not enough for Timothy to know all this stuff and even to believe that the scriptures are this great tool that Paul describes when he says it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I, let me just say parenthetically, that it's great for teaching others, great for rebuking others, great for correcting others, and great for training others, as long as I'm the corrector, the trainer, the teacher, the rebuker. It's not so great when I am the recipient of all those things, which happens to me on a daily basis as I read his word. But you realize this is useful because it opens the eyes, it, it, it opens the heart so that you see things that otherwise you would not and that would keep you from being thoroughly equipped for every good work. Isn't that interesting? How do you become thoroughly equipped? By letting God teach you, by letting God correct you, by letting God rebuke you, by letting God discipline and train you, which oftentimes we go through and we don't even realize we're being disciplined and trained. We just think God lost our index card. You know, somebody stole our identity and are getting the blessings while we're getting the punishment. But did Timothy believe that enough to follow them implicitly when hardships came? Was he convinced, as he says in verse 16, that all Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God? That as Peter said, it doesn't come by the will of man, but men spoke as God, by, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That as Peter would lay, say in his first letter, that it's the word of God that stands forever. Here's the point I think is important. I think it's of great benefit to have an intellectual understanding of God's word. We're to study to show ourselves approved. We're to rightly divide the word of truth. We're supposed to know what the Bible says and not believe something that the Bible doesn't say. We're, we're supposed to be clear on our theology. That doesn't mean we need to become expert theologians, but we need to be clear on what the Bible is and what it teaches. But there's a deeper penetration that also needs to happen, and that's this penetration into my heart where I look at the Bible and it's no longer an ancient book. It's not longer a, great, a, book, a book of great wisdom. It is literally God breathing truth and life and reality into my soul. 
that he's breathing into me. That the same way that as Paul is writing these words and the Holy Spirit is breathing this into him, he's writing it down as, it, as God speaks to him. Now I read it today and the same spirit is more than just Paul, more than his intellect or his experience or everything else. It's him being used by God to breathe into my life the, the word of truth that if I believe when I read it that I am breathing in the very words of God himself, then I have a different attitude about this book. And I reverence it and I reverence every word that is in it and that's when it becomes profitable. So that when Paul says, continue in these things, his real emphasis is continue in the word so that God's word can continue its work in you. Continue in his word so that God's word can continue its work in you. That even when I don't fully grasp what I am reading, God is speaking to me in my life. And you begin to have those experiences where you're reading a line, you're saying, I don't know if my mind's even engaged, I'm just reading and going through it. And then all of a sudden you come upon something else and your mind immediately goes back to something you read. And you go back and go, oh my gosh, God just spoke. I know there's a lot of mystical mumbo-jumbo that gets wrapped around the Bible that shouldn't be there. I was guilty of being one of those guys who had opened up and go, Judas went out and hung himself. <laughs> go thou and do the same. You know, it's like, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> you learn real quick that that technique is not really reliable. But when you read it line upon line, precept upon precept, when you go through it and you read it from Genesis to Revelation and you begin to understand very quickly that there's something going on internally in my life that I can't, I can't explain. There's a spiritual dimension that begins to, I enter into the moment I just begin to read this book. Before I was a Christian, that didn't happen. But as soon as I had the Spirit of God living in me, that's what happened when I began to read the Bible. Have I ever become numb to God's Word? Honestly, yes, I have. There's been times I just like, eh, dull, boring. You know why? Because I stopped having a heart for God and I fell in love with something else. I fell in love with success or acclaim or some other thing. You fall in love with that and you start pursuing that. But that's always a dead end and that's always an empty place and an unfulfilling place and then suddenly the void in your life becomes so great that you go back to his word and go, oh God, your word, your word. I have done gobs of teachings on why you can trust the Bible and why it's reliable prophetically, historically, textually, go through all the list. But I discovered something that none of those arguments ever convinced somebody to live this book. What convinces you to live it is when it speaks to you ex cathedra. <laughs> when God speaks from heaven through his word, and says to you, thus saith the Lord. 
So when I was a 19-year-old college student at the University of California at Berkeley and uh, had just given my life to Christ and was very excited about growing in Jesus and I really was saying, God, I'll do whatever you want and God says to me, well, I want you to leave school and become part of this ministry. And I remember sitting there thinking, okay, if that's what God wants. And I open my Bible and I come to Matthew 16, 24, and he says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. And I immediately knew that was God's word for me. And then my brother talked me out of it. And I went through three months wondering where God went. Well, God hadn't gone anywhere. Basically, I had closed the door. <laughs> and I was sitting there going, Lord, can you speak up? Because I cannot hear a word that you're saying. Well, if you have nothing to say, I'll just go on. <laughs> but the moment I got to the end of that and said, God, I, I, I feel void and empty and unhappy and miserable. What's wrong with me? God said, if any man will come after me, let him pick up his cross and follow me. Oh, <laughs> We're going back to there at that point. Huh? We're starting over again. <laughs> okay. And that time I obeyed. And it changed everything. I'm just saying that the Bible is more than information. It's more than words on a page. It's more than a historical document. It's, it's more than just moral teachings and good advice. It is spirit. It is spiritual, and if you have the Spirit of Christ living in you, the Spirit that wrote this book will speak into your heart, and you'll experience its power, its transforming work. And that's the bottom line. And that's all I have to say about that. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would have hearts that can hear you. Not just hear me, Lord. I mean, I... <sighs> You know me, God, I'm just an old windbag. But God, that we could hear your heart. We could hear your spirit, sense the power of your word into our hearts and our minds in a way that would truly release us from deception and even ignorance. That would break the bondages and that your truth would be so compelling in our lives, God that our hearts would yearn after you. That when you seek to teach us, Lord, when you seek to rebuke us, when you seek to correct us, when you seek to discipline us, Lord God, that we would embrace that work of your spirit in our hearts, knowing that it will render us useful. It will equip us that we might do the good work that we were created, that our, the image of our life will look increasingly like your son and less and less like that of the evil one because we're no longer captive to his will, but we have become captive to your will. Help us, God, to see this. We ask in Jesus' holy name. As we continue our time of reflection and worship together, I invite you to take the elements. If you're a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, these elements are for you. If, if you're not and you know you're not, then all the best this can be for you is kind of a mid-service snack. 
you may want to skip that and go over to the family center and get some real food. But for us, this is incredibly sacred and holy because Jesus said, whenever you do it, you do it as a memorial to me. You, you do it as, as a remembrance of what I have done for you and what, that, what I did for you is supposed to mean to your life, that my body was given for you, my, my life was poured out on the cross for you. And every time I do it, I bring myself into identity with that. I identify myself with the crucified life of Christ. If you don't know Jesus, and I know that there is always somebody here who doesn't know Jesus. You've never met him. But yet you know that the Holy Spirit has been pressing on your heart today. You, you feel something. You may not even know the Holy Spirit yet, but there's this thing that's been compelling and you're just saying, I, I just want to live that changed life. I want to be free. I would invite you to come as we continue to pray. Myself and some others will be here. We'll be glad to pray for you. I pray with you. If you have a need, we'll pray with you. But it's so important for us not to be just hearers, as James said, but to be doers. Well, how do we do that? We don't do it all at once. We start by saying, God, I've been nailed today. I've been nailed. <laughs> and I, I, I'm humbling myself before you. That's the secret for a transformed life. Confess your sins, Paul, uh, John wrote in John 1, 1 John 1, 9. Confess, acknowledge, take ownership. Well, this is my sin. I, I recognize it. I'm guilty of this. And then he said, that's where God kicks in, that he is just and he is faithful to cleanse you of that sin and to change your life. He, began, he changes you. But all that I need to do is saying, God, your word is truth. And I humble myself in acknowledgement to the truth of your word. So respond as the Holy Spirit ministers to you tonight.